the book of Revelation, chapter 8. As we saw in chapter 4, verse 2, as well as in chapter 1, um, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings John into a state of prophetic vision, which John describes as being in the Spirit. In this state, he is taken into the presence of God, so that from there he might see, from a divine perspective, the things that are about to happen. And what he finds in the presence of God, we have seen in the past several weeks, is worship. We have the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and then thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 angels worshiping God. While John is there, he sees a scroll at the right hand of the throne of God. It is sealed with seven seals, which no one is able to open. But it is also here in the presence of God that we find the Lamb, who is presented as one who is worthy to open the seals and the scroll. And as we've seen in the past weeks, the seven seals mark this scroll, which is written on both sides, as a last will and testament, as a covenant, a legal document, and it is witnessed by seven witnesses, the seven seals. The seals therefore refer to judgment. If you break the terms of this covenant, these are the things, these are the things that witness against you, these are the things that will happen to you. We saw that the first four seals oftentimes are referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the fifth seal uh, reveals the martyrs under the altar crying out to God, how long until he brings judgment? The sixth seal we saw refers to decreation. That is, it describes judgment in terms of the reversal of creation. And chapter six ends, we saw, with the statement and then the question, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, last Sunday we looked at chapter 7, because it answers the question, who will be able to stand in the day of God's wrath? And the answer is, God's people, by his grace. The numbered and numberless, that is, the 144,000, but then the, those that cannot be numbered, those who are on earth and those who are in heaven. God's wrath will be poured out in a few years after John writes this but God's people will be able to stand. Today we come to chapter 8. It is the seventh and the final seal, and this in turn leads to the seven trumpets found here in the book of Revelation. If you look at verse number 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The he here refers to the lamb, because only the lamb is worthy to open the seals, and he's opened the previous six so he doesn't tell us it is lamb, but we know, in fact, it is the lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He opens the seventh seal, and the result is that there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, this should strike us as rather strange. Because what we have seen thus far in chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 is that the presence of God, that is in heaven, is a place of non-stop worship. The four living creatures 
As I said at the beginning of our worship, day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the four living creatures do this, the 24 elders fall down before him who lives on the throne and say, uh, they worship him who lives forever and ever. In chapter 5, in response to the fact that the Lamb is, is worthy to open the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing a new song, we are told. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. And then thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 angels sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and under the sea are singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So heaven is marked pretty much by this racket of worship that is going on nonstop. So when we read that with the opening of the seventh seal there is silence, that should strike us as rather strange. Now, our first thoughts I think would be that, well, whatever is coming with the seventh seal must be so horrible so devastating as to take your breath away and therefore everyone in heaven is silent for half an hour. We might think of it as the calm before the storm, before the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and all these terrible judgments come out. But I mentioned when we began our study in the book of Revelation that we are not free to choose what symbols we will interpret or how we will interpret the various symbols that are presented. Rather, we need to think in terms of what is already presented in Scripture. So when we read about there being, being silence in heaven for about half an hour, does that strike you as strange? I mean, we, we think of heaven as a place of exact, I mean, 144,000, and then about half an hour? I mean, it seems rather general. We would want something more specific. But when we read this, we need to go through Scripture to find out what, what this could possibly mean. Well, in the Old Testament, silence is seen as creation's response to God's coming in judgment. When God comes in judgment, creation is silent. And let me read you some passages from Zechariah chapter 2. Be still or be silent before the Lord all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That is, he is coming in judgment. In Zephaniah, be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of judgment. In Habakkuk chapter 2, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There is, I think, a sense of awe at God's power and judgment. But why silence for about half an hour? Why the specific time frame? Well, I think to help us, we need to keep reading in this particular passage. So follow along, if you would, as I read verses 2 through 5. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them was given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. 
Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. I think that our answer is found in verses 3 and 4. Because what John describes as taking place in heaven, people would be familiar with within the context of temple worship. There were different aspects of worship in in Judaism, uh, the Mosaic system. We think more of the sacrifices that's out in the courtyard where animals are killed and then they are burned. But that's the courtyard. If you go into the building itself, you have the holy place, and then the holiest place, or the Holy of Holies. Well, in the holy place, there is a golden altar, the altar of incense. And there a priest is to go in and burn incense. And this is how it would take place. Two priests would go in and arrange things. And then a priest with two assistants would go into this place. One of the assistants would spread hot coals on the golden altar of incense. The other would arrange the incense. So that the priest, after they would leave, would come, he would wait for the signal, and there would be a signal given, and then he would take this incense and put it on the burning coals. And incense, as you know, will produce smoke, and the smoke would go up. This is what Zechariah was doing in Luke chapter 1, when the archangel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that his wife would have a son who would come to be known as John the Baptist. When the priest burned the incense, no one else can be in there but him. But the people outside could see the smoke going up. And it is at this time that they would be silent and they would pray to God. And so what John envisions in the presence of God is still worship. But it is worship of a different kind, that of prayer, the prayer of the saints as represented by the incense and the smoke. So, silence for half an hour. Now there are seven angels with seven trumpets. We've seen seven angels already, the seven churches. But I don't think these are the same angels. I think the seven angels we saw earlier are connected to the seven churches. These seven angels are connected to the seven trumpets. And therefore, we look at the trumpets more than we do at the angels to understand what is going on. And again, we we can't simply say, oh, trumpet. I, I know what a trumpet is. We need to look at the Old Testament to see how a trumpet is used. Numbers chapter 10, I think of all passages in the Old Testament, gives us sort of a catalog list of what trumpets were to be used for. They were to be used to summon Israel to worship. That is, when it was time to come together to the tabernacle, these two horns would be blown and people would know, okay, it's time to go to temple, it's time to go to the tabernacle and to worship God. At the beginning of every month, the feast of the new moon, the trumpets would be blown. When sacrifices were being offered, the burnt offerings and the freewill offerings or the fellowship offerings, the trumpets would be blown. When going into battle, and this we have borrowed from them, we have bugles that would give signals, trumpets were to be blown. If there was a new king, the trumpets were to be blown. To announce the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, proclaim liberty throughout the land is taken from that. The trumpet was to be blown to signal the beginning of the new year. In the prophetic writings, the trumpet is used to announce 
that judgment is coming. And there is a chance to repent. Jeremiah has the word of God. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. That is, the the trumpet says judgment is coming unless you repent. But they would not repent. In the book of Joel, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. So which of these aspects does John have in mind as he sees this in heaven? What, what is going on? Well, I actually think it's something quite different. I think these aspects will come into play. We'll see as we go along. But those who know the Old Testament, when they hear of seven trumpets, I think immediately something comes to mind. And it is the story of the fall of Jericho. That is, God gave Israel instructions that you are to march around the city of Jericho. Do you know the story? Once a day for six days and on the seventh day, seven times. Well, when when Joshua arranged the people, God gave him instructions. At the front, you have seven priests with seven horns. And then you have the Ark of the Covenant and then you have the twelve tribes. And on the seventh day, The seven priests are to blow the seven horns and then the walls of Jericho would come down. And that's exactly what happened. Well, what John is writing about, we will see as we go along, is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. God will judge Jerusalem for rejecting the Messiah and for all the sins they have committed for killing God's people. Jerusalem will fall. Just as Jericho fell. And here we're given a hint. The seven angels with the seven trumpets. Judgment is coming to Jerusalem. But there's another angel. An eighth angel, if you wish. Who came and stood at the altar. Given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. And the language here is very Old Testament. I mean, this is very much the Old Testament system of worship. The golden altar. The golden censer, the incense, the prayers of the saints, the smoke of the incense. This is all stuff that we find in the Old Testament. As I mentioned, the golden altar is found inside the holy place, right in front of the veil. There is a curtain, and only once a year could one person go around the curtain into the holiest place. And there, the Ark of the Covenant. But right up against the curtain would be the golden altar the place where the incense was to be offered. Now, John is in heaven itself, and the altar of the incense incense is there in front of the throne of God. There's no longer a veil because of the work of Christ. The prayers of God's saints go directly to God himself. But there's something new here, and that is the golden censer, which tells us something. This is not the everyday burning of incense. This isn't what Zechariah did in Luke chapter 1. This is the one day a year thing, the day of atonement activity. Because every day, incense would be burned. But one day a year, the high priest would go in, take coals off of this altar, and put it in this metal container, a censer. He would then go around the veil, behind the veil to the altar, uh, to the Ark of the Covenant, 
And there he would take two handfuls of incense and pour it on the coals, which would fill the place with smoke, I think which had different aspects to it. One was so that things are not as clear. I mean, you're in the presence of God. Smoke, I think, is entirely appropriate. The smoke of incense. And there he would do the work of atonement, which would take place once a year. We are told that the incense comes with the prayers of the saints. The smoke of of the incense goes into the presence of God himself. It occurred to me, and so I wanted to say something at this point. When we read about saints in the Bible, in the New Testament, as well as in the Old Testament, these are not a special category of people. These are not like super Christians, people who have attained something that the rest of us have not. If you read Paul's writings particularly, it is very clear that someone who has put his or her faith in Christ is a saint. They are a believer, they are a child of God, and they are referred to as a holy one, that is, as a sanctified one, a saint. So the prayers of the saints here are not prayers of some Christians who have attained a special status. It's our prayers. When we pray to God, John sees it as being the smoke of incense in the presence of God. The saints, in the language of Revelation, we saw last week, are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this is not only breathtaking, but I think powerful imagery here of being in the presence of God and worshiping God with the prayers of the saints. But then in verse number five, something happens totally unexpected. The angel takes these coals from the altar that were in the censer and throws them down to earth. It's like, we're having a moment here, aren't we? I mean, we're worshiping God. We're quiet. We're in the presence of God. This type of violence is not something that we would expect. But if you look at the rest of verse number five, um, there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Again, the language is very Old Testament. This is from Exodus chapter 19. When God appeared on Mount Sinai to his people, this is what Moses records. On the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. We have it all here. We have not only the thunder and lightning, but we have the thick cloud. It's not of incense, but it represents the incense. And then a trumpet blast. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. So what is going on here? I thought we were worshiping God and now it turns seemingly violent. Well, we've already had hints of this. We have the lamb who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. We have the lamb who has overcome. We have the lamb against whose wrath no one can stand. We don't think of lambs as being particularly wrathful. And so the way we normally look at things, I think, will not do. There is a great reversal here. Now the trumpets 
which could be used to call God's people to worship, are heralds of the destruction of Israel. The incense and the liturgy, which are a part of worship, now become the means of overthrowing Israel. And this is important. If we take the incense to be the prayer of the saints, and the saints, we saw, were saying, How long, O Lord, do you bring judgment? The prayers of the saints lead to the unleashing of God's judgment. You understand that? The prayers of the saints, of God's people, lead to the unleashing of judgment. Now, this may seem offensive to some. This seems very unchristian, very ungodly, just as some of the Psalms are, the, what are known as the imprecatory Psalms, uh, Psalms which call on God to judge people. Let me just read to you part of one from Psalm 18. Some people who are not familiar with the Bible may be stunned to know that this is in the Bible. David writes this, it is his prayer. Break the teeth in their mouth, O God. Tear out, O Lord, the fangs of the lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the, when they draw the bow, let their arrows be blunted. Like a slug melting away as it moves along, like a stillborn child, may they not see the sun. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Well, this is hardly what we would expect to find in the Bible, and this is not what we would expect of God's people. But let me ask you now, and we'll come to it again at the end. Should God's people pray for justice? Do we want God to make things right? Well, when we pray for justice, what do we expect? That it will be very nice and tidy and neat and, and everything will be made fine? No, we should expect that God will come in judgment. And now the seven angels are prepared to bring that judgment, to announce that judgment. There's several things before we get into the trumpets. We'll look at the first four today very quickly, but several things for you to keep in mind. The first group of judgments were seals. And if you look at the language, they all dealt in fourths. One-fourth of this, one-fourth of this, one-fourth of this. The trumpets deal with thirds. I don't know that that's particularly significant, but I think it's something you need to keep in mind. In both sets of judgments, as will be the case with the bulls, the first four form a unit. The first four go together, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, for example, and then the other three are sort of uh, on their own. The last three we will see are introduced by an eagle that flies around heaven saying, Woe, woe, woe to those people upon whom this judgment will come. The judgment found in these trumpets, as with the seals, is not total. We're not talking about the end of the world here. We are talking about significant devastation. It isn't the end of time. It isn't the end of the world. It will be the end of the world for some, but it's not the end of this world. It is a time of great judgment. The judgments, I don't think, are to be taken literally. And it's, it's interesting, in, in reading different commentators, they're like, these are not literal. But this means this, and this means that, and this happened on such and such. Um, I think what is intended is that we would remember previous judgments. The language comes from the Old Testament. 
as we go through, you'll see it's like the plagues on Egypt. It's like the destruction of Babylon. The language is borrowed to show that judgment is in fact coming. And then one, one more thing. The fact that judgment comes from above, you know, like the censor, the, the coals that are thrown down, I think the reader, in case we might have forgotten, the judgment comes from God. Okay, God is the one who is doing this judging. The first trumpet is found in verse number seven. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Here we have a triple curse. We have hail, fire, and blood thrown down on the land. I think what is translated as earth means land. A third of the land is burned up, a third of the trees are burned up, and all the grass is. This is the seventh plague that fell on Egypt without the blood. But remember that the symbolism is evocative. It wants to evoke a certain thing and realize, oh yes, this is the plague that God brought on Egypt. What about the second trumpet in verse number 8, uh, 8 and 9? The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Here we have a parallel with the first plague that came on Egypt when the water turned to blood and the fish, the living creatures in the sea, died as a result. But here we have a different cause. There it was Moses uh, raising his uh, staff, hitting the water. It turns to blood. Here, what causes it? Well, it is something like a huge mountain all ablaze, thrown into the sea. Well, what could this mean? What could this symbolize or refer to? This is a language against Babylon from the book of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. I am against you, O destroying mountain, you who destroy the whole earth, declares the Lord. He's speaking to Babylon. I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you off the cliffs, and make you a burned out mountain. The sea will rise over Babylon. Its roaring waves will cover her. So the, the judgment spoken against Egypt is now spoken against Israel. The judgment spoken against Egypt, the first plague, and Babylon is now spoken against Israel. And I think that this is the point that's trying to be made. Um, the language that God used against those who were not his people, not covenant people, he is now using against those who were his people, but who broke the covenant. By the way, parenthetically, uh, one writer uh, has a very intriguing suggestion in this regard. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but the last week that Jesus was in Jerusalem, this is after uh, Palm Sunday, at one point, he's going into Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree and it, he's looking for fruit. It doesn't have fruit and he curses it and it withers up. Okay, that in itself is problematic. I mean, that's, that's an, an issue all by itself. But the disciples are amazed. They're like, sort of like, boy, how'd you do that? I mean, that, that's sort of amazing. And Jesus says to them, if you have faith and do not doubt, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. 
there is some connection there. I'm not, I'm not prepared to connect all the dots. But now we have a, sea, or a mountain that is thrown into the sea. Jesus said, if you say to this mountain, and he's in Jerusalem, be cast into the sea, it will be done. And remember, the prayers of the saints lead to judgment. Now we have the third trumpet, verses 10 and 11. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. We've seen judgment against Egypt, that language, judgment against Babylon, that language. Now we come into a third category of language of judgment, that which God promised against his people if they turned against him. In the Old Testament, God told his people, if you break my covenant, I will cause you to eat or to drink wormwood. Let me read to you some passages from Deuteronomy chapter 29. Make sure that no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today, whose heart turns away from the Lord your God to go and worship the gods of those nations, make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison or such wormwood. Then centuries later, Jeremiah the prophet records, The Lord said, It is because they have forsaken my law, which I have set before them, They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the Baals or the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. See, I will make this people eat bitter food, that is wormwood, and drink poisoned water. Now the picture becomes a bit clearer. Judgment against Egypt. Judgment against Babylon. Judgment against God's people who turn their back on him and go after false gods. Then we come to the fourth trumpet, uh, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. Now we return to Egypt once more. This is the ninth plague. And in case the reader hasn't gotten it at this point, hopefully we will at this point, the judgment that God reserved against those who hate him, those who are hard-hearted like Pharaoh, those who would not listen to God, he now pours on those who have turned their back against him. God will bring catastrophic judgment on Jerusalem just like he did to Egypt. The ten plagues on Egypt God will do worse to Jerusalem. Why? The wormwood, apostasy they turned their back on God. We're going to stop here and and pick it up the Lord willing next week but is there anything we can take home with us today from this particular passage? And and some of you might be saying wait a minute Damon Um, did these things actually happen? Did catastrophic judgment fall on those who broke the covenant? Absolutely. In 70 AD and beyond, the Roman Empire devastated the land of Israel, Palestine, and destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. And the people of of Israel suffered greatly. 
It was God's judgment on them because they broke the covenant. And the Lord willing, we will see this. It will become, I think, abundantly clear as we continue to go through the book of Revelation. This is what this book is about. God is sending judgment against those who were his people. And thus the question, who will be able to stand in the day of his wrath? Boy, if God is going to judge his covenant people, what about me? Is there anything of value we can learn from this passage? I think there are several things. First of all, the centrality of worship. And worship as defined by scripture, not by us. Worship is to ascribe worth to God, to say you are worthy. This is what the 24 elders said to the one who sits on the throne. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The book of Revelation has been described as a a book of worship. It's not normally the way we think of it. We think of it as terrible things happening and, ooh, what's going to happen in the future? It's a roadmap to the future. What we've seen thus far in chapters 4 through 8 is worship. Worship is central. I think we need to recognize that. But secondly, worship has a force, if you wish. It is powerful. The four living creatures say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The martyrs under the altar say, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the land and avenge our blood. Judgment is an expression of God's holiness. Because God is holy, he judges. And the judgments that we see in the book of Revelation are not presented primarily as judgment. They are presented primarily as worship. God is worthy because he is holy and because he is holy, he will judge those who have broken the covenant. God's people in their worship pray for justice. By the way, just to remind you, When does this all take place? Where is John? He's on the Isle of Patmos. And what day is it? It's the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. It's the day of worship. That John is told about the coming judgment. And the judgment tells us about God's holiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, former pastor in England, has written about the imprecatory Psalms. And he writes, look at the psalmist. Look at some of the, those imprecatory psalms. What are they? There is nothing wrong with them. It is just the zeal of the psalmist. He is grieved and troubled because these people are not honoring God as they should be. That's his supreme concern. That's why the, that's why the martyrs under the altar say, how long till you avenge, till you make things right. Things are wrong right now. As Lonnie read to us from Psalm 73, boy, you know, some days it seems like it's better, you're better off being wicked than being righteous, because the wicked seem to have it made. Justice makes things right. What about forgiveness? Is not God a God of forgiveness? Yes, He is. He is the Lord God Almighty. 
he forgives those who repent. Somehow I think the modern person thinks, as the French philosopher said on his deathbed, oh, God will forgive, that's his job. That's what God has to do. No, he doesn't. He is the Lord God Almighty. He forgives those who repent. What about love? We're told to love our enemies. How can we pray for justice? Well, two things to consider. Love doesn't mean allowing someone to do as he or she wants. If your child wants to do something dangerous, do you say, go ahead, I love you. Do whatever you want. No, it is precisely because you love your child that you will say, no, you cannot do that. And it is precisely love that leads to judgment, because judgment says what you're doing is wrong and it needs to be corrected. We should understand that love for others should not surpass our love for God. I mentioned this years ago um, in a sermon on the imprecatory Psalms. If you're familiar with uh, William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, uh, Brutus comes out to address the crowd. He and his colleagues have assassinated Julius Caesar, and then they wash their hands in his blood. So they come out to the crowd with bloody hands, literally. And Julius Caesar was Brutus's friend. And, and, and Brutus has to explain to the crowd why he killed his friend. And he says to them, It is not that I love Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Yes, I loved my friend, but I loved Rome more. And we are to love our enemies, but we are to love God's holiness more. And therefore, we are to pray that God would bring justice. We are not to take matters into our own hands. In fact, worship is committing such matters to God. I've often wondered how I would respond if somebody did something horrible to someone that I loved. And I think my natural reaction would be, I want to take matters into my own hands. But what we see in worship is, I give them to God. And I pray that God will make things right. I don't take them into my own hands. When I take them into my own hands, I am not worshiping God. When I commit them to God, I am in fact worshiping Him. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you say the words, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Do you mean what you say? Do you know what it means for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? It means judgment. It means correcting the wrongs that are present in our world. See, I think that in our time when we say worship, we think close your eyes, sort of sway back and forth. That's worship. That somehow I need to create this feeling within my heart and now I'm worshiping God. That's not how the Bible defines worship. It defines it as ascribing to God worth, saying you are worthy, and calling on Him, saying your will be done here as it is in heaven. And if that happens, it can get really messy. But it is God's people calling out for justice. Let me close with a passage from Deuteronomy in which God tells Israel, this is what's going to happen if you turn away from me. 
And let me ask you, do we want God to keep his word? Boy, if we can't keep if we can't trust God to keep his word, then who can we trust? So we want him to keep his word. And this is what he said. Your children who follow you in later generations and foreigners who come from distant lands will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur, nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. Sound familiar? It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his fierce anger. And the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because the pe- this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them. Gods they did not know, gods he had not given them. Therefore the Lord's anger burned against this land, so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. This is what John foresees will happen shortly after he writes this book. And for God's people, it may seem too much. It may seem too much. And he wants to prepare them to know that God's judgment is in fact coming on Israel, but that he will protect his people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what John has written and for what it teaches us about worship. I fear that we have somehow emasculated our worship in this generation. We have lost a sense of the force and the power of it. Even when Jesus taught us to pray and taught us to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we've drained that of any power. And we have forgotten that as your people, we are to pray that things will be made right. We are to pray for justice. And justice involves judgment. And for those who broke your covenant, in keeping your word, you had to judge them. And you judged them with the judgment you did Egypt and Babylon, with the judgment you promise on those who turn their backs on you. But above all, may we see that the context, the theme is worship. It's Sunday, and John is receiving this vision of the coming judgment from the one who sits on the throne, the one who is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. I thank you that we could spend this time together in worship. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. And we pray this in your son's name.
Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.